Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. Today we'll be talking about Eternal Weekend. Hooray! We're here at this time with uh, Josh McCurley, who you may recognize as a vintage streamer, uh, Infant No One, or Infant Number One. Is it? It's Infant Number One, right? Yes. Great. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's not some sort of of nihilistic, no child that exists, Infant No One. Yeah. I mean, no, but if you want to take it that way, then sure, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's your name. You gotta, you gotta own that. So, so we're here with, uh, infant number one, uh, Josh McCurley. We'll be sort of previewing the Eternal Weekend vintage metagame and then we'll look at some food from Pittsburgh. Cool. Yeah. I thought we'd just sort of start with the, the introduction of Eternal Weekend. Obviously, this is the home of North American vintage champs. Or I should say North America vintage champs. Uh, now there are three vintage champs in Asia and Europe as well. This year's edition is in Pittsburgh at the convention center. It's been in Pittsburgh for a couple of years now, right? This is the second year. The second year, right. I think the vintage main event starts on Thursday at 9 o'clock. I think Josh McCurley and I are playing in it, and Josh Chapel is hanging out around it, and um, Jeff is going to be in Toledo, probably. Should we give the dates? Because, I mean, there's still time if people want to make plans, right? I mean, will there be time by the time this comes out? Uh, there could be. All right, then. The whole weekend is November 1st through 4th. And Vintage is on Thursday? Uh, yes. No, sorry, it's on Friday. How can it be an eternal weekend if Vintage is on Friday? Uh, I, I, it's the end of the week. <laughs> so, All right. Yeah. I'll accept it. The, the Vintage North America Championship is on Friday, November 2nd. The player meeting is at 9 o'clock, so you'll be getting up early for that. Legacy is on Saturday, and Sunday is the day two of Legacy Champs. I, we don't need to talk about Sunday. Nothing's happened on Sunday. That's true. On Sunday... There is the Eternal Central Old School at the Elks Lodge. Oh, there you go. See, we were looking for that, too. Wait, so it is off-site? Yeah. So I think there's two. I think there's an old oh. school that's like put on by Card Titan at the event. And I think oh, there yeah. is an old school that's put on by Eternal Central at the Elks Lodge where you can drink alcohol. Oh, I see that. Uh -huh. I see that on Friday there are two old school challenges that are both unsanctioned 93-94. I think that's because they're allowing the um, collector's edition cards. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. There's probably more on Sunday, Saturday and Sunday as well. There are. Yes. Old school all weekend, vintage all weekend, legacy all weekend. You know, go and have fun. So if you actually want to, like, compete in vintage, what should we be looking to beat? Good question. That's why we brought Josh in. Josh, what's the vintage metagame? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, right now is I play mostly Magic Online, and I think that the paper meta is actually going to be a little bit different. Okay. Like right now on MTGO is a ton of workshops and paradoxical outcome. Okay. In the leagues anyway. And the challenges have a different meta. They've got a lot of the, the Jess guy and the blue stuff. Okay. To combat the shops, which is, as a shops player, is extremely frustrating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there appears to be a higher percentage of dredge than in paper. And Oath right now is actually on a downturn on Moto, hmm. but I, I fully expect a lot of Oath at Champs. I also expect some survival since it won, uh, oh, that's right. The Asian, uh, Eternal Weekend. Yeah, I, uh, had overlooked survival. But I realize that that is sort of up and coming and has been doing pretty well online, right? It it has. It was actually created by a friend of mine. So I got to get beat up by it very early in his testing. <laughs> Let's start with that. What's the game plan with survival? I mean, obviously, they're, I know they use like Vengevines as aggro and hollow ones. Yeah, Vengevine, hollow ones, and basking rootwalla. Okay. And then it's all of the dumb toolbox creatures. Right, because you're playing survival of the fittest to go find whatever you need against your particular opponent. Right. Typically, if you can make it to about turn four or five, 
you're probably doing okay against them. Okay. The problem is, is on turn two, staring down three, four threes or whatever Vingevine is, is a mm-hmm. little rough sometimes. Sure. What's the best angle to attack them? Are you stopping graveyard? Or are you stopping um, creatures in general? Or <laughs> I, I mean, it doesn't seem like counter spells are the way to go here. No, no. Once again, this is you know through the lens of a shops player. Sure. Is stopping the survival. Oh, okay. That slows them down enough to where you can start implementing your game plan. I got tired of losing to him, so I just started bringing in the spyglass and all of the graveyard hate and just whatever I could to stop it. But even then, sometimes he just, the hollow ones are bigger than my dudes. Okay, sure. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's part of the risk is that you, you could answer the toolbox and still just lose to their aggro plan. Right. I think the, I guess, saving grace for all of the survival opponents is it's a tricky deck to play. Mm-hmm. You've got to know how to sequence it. Uh, I've attempted to play it, and it was, uh, it was not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so it's... Like, if they don't know what they're doing or they get the wrong thing, then you've got a chance. Sure. It seems like a cool list, and it's it's very different from a lot of what we normally see in Vintage. Like, it's it's kind of a refreshing change from the normal blue-looking and artifact-looking decks that we get. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of artifact-looking, I know that you said you are a shops player. What are you going to be looking to do with workshops? It's the typical aggro shops build. I'm probably going to be packing uh, Immortal Sun in my build because I love that card. And I think that it helps break the mirror. Nice. You know, because my guys are bigger than their guys. Right. I've been playing around with a uh, couple of different builds, and none of them are have the consistency and the quick clock that the aggro build has. Okay. So that's, that's why at, at EW, that's what I'm going to be playing. I mean, I really wanted to play the uh, Chains of Mephistopheles shop deck. Oh, yeah. But You've been messing around with that. Oh, I love it. It's so much fun, but yeah. it's just not fast enough. Yeah. From my impressions of uh, seeing games online, your games and other people's, it seems like for people who have been playing vintage for a long time, the shops strategy seems to have shifted from a more sort of prison shops where you actually had enough prison lock pieces that have gotten restricted. And now it's sort of more of an aggro. It's It really seems more like an affinity list in modern or legacy. Absolutely. Yeah, it is definitely shifted to much more of the aggro affinity type deck. I miss the prison style. Sure. No offense to you. It seems like it made the game a little bit simpler just because you could, you slow the game down enough that you're just sitting behind an opponent who can't do anything. And now your opponent can interact. It's just whether they can interact with you fast enough before your creatures kill them. Absolutely. And it's completely unfair. That's not the way shops is supposed to work. <laughs> right. They're supposed to sit there and be sad. <laughs> That's the way magic is supposed to work. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> I don't come to play it against an opponent. I come to watch a person be sad. <laughs> I think that we've had that discussion before that in Vintage, every single deck is trying to eliminate its opponent from actually playing the same game. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's true. Like with shops, you used to, you know, lock them out. They couldn't play anything. Their interaction was zero. And like with, I don't know, a storm deck or whatever, like you kill them on turn one or two. And obviously once they're dead, their interaction is zero. So like, weird. It's just, it's just <laughs> different ways of reaching the same conclusion. So have you settled on, you're going to play shops at eternal weekend, some variant of workshop at a workshop deck? Absolutely. What are you trying to beat? What are you the most concerned about facing? Actually, paradoxical outcome is is what scares me the most. Mm. Yeah. Like the whole reason I built the Chains Shops build was because I played a league against five paradoxical outcome decks and only beat one opponent because he had no idea what he was doing. Uh, it was his first game with the deck. Yeah. The Chains deck was absolutely built out of pure salt and hatred. <laughs> like the best decks. Yeah. I mean, that sort of goes back to what we were saying, that, you know, your prison just isn't there, and Paradoxical can race you. Like, they, they have enough mana to get out from whatever prison elements you do have, and then we'll kill you on turn one or two, generally. Right, and the fact that the incidental uh, splash damage with the four Hercules Recall main, mm-hmm. where, you know, yeah, you can tax the crap out of them, but as soon as they can cast that, well, then they win. So. Sure. It's very frustrating. Sure. That's going to be the deck that's going to tilt me straight into the beer bracket. (laughs) Well, it's good you already have a plan. (laughs) So what are you packing in particular for your Nemesis Paradoxical? (laughs) I'm going to be running uh, four Null Rods. Main deck? 
Yeah, they're going to be in the side. I've played them in the main. It's, I'm really hoping that, I'm hoping that people's inexperience with a paradoxical deck will keep them away from me. Mm. And just really against the paradoxical decks, a lot of it is just hoping that I sequence correctly and turn off the Mox Opal at the right time, oh, things okay. like that to be able to give myself that extra turn to be able to load up everything onto the Ravager so I can throw it all on the Ballista to kill them. Okay, sure. So you, you're essentially trying to stall them long enough and then combo them out. <laughs> right. It's just like all of the main deck Hercules is the problem. Okay. And sure. multiple times I've cast a Chalice on two, even though it turns off the, you know, Arcbound Ravager and Steel Overseer in my hand, just because I know, well, then they can't Hercules me. Right, sure. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you bringing out of the board? Transformational sideboard to Oath. (laughs) So out of the board, it really depends on if they're running the Mentor build or not. Yeah. There's essentially two builds of Paradoxical Outcome. One that kills with Tendrils, like a Storm deck, and one that kills with Monastery Mentor. Like It's slightly more control-y, is that right? Yes. Like, I'd rather face the Mentor deck than the Tendrils version. But against the Mentor version, it's... Like, you bring in the Dismember, I'm probably going to be packing one to two Worm Coils, the Null Rods, the Spyglass, just because at least that way I know what I'm battling up against. I mean, Spyglass doesn't really do a whole lot as far as turning off their mana, but the Mentor build plays Vault Key much more often than the Tendrils version. Oh, sure. That's something to worry about then, too. I think the biggest problem with Paradoxical is it just, it plays all of the unfair cards. It plays the Vault Key and Blightsteel and the Stupid Monk and just everything. Right. Yeah, there's there's just a lot of ways it can get you. It can go wide, it can go tall, it can take all the turns. Yeah, inevitably they do whatever I don't have the answer for in my hand. Yeah, my, uh, so I've played against Paradoxical a couple of times in tournaments, and my sense is generally that if I can stop the Paradoxical outcome itself, I do okay. Like, I'm, I'm speaking in this case as a blue player, and I feel like if I can get past that one spell, I generally do okay. Although, obviously, as you say, they have all of the broken spells, and Monastery Mentor is no slouch, so... Seems like that's the challenge is making sure that you can sort of get ahead and stay ahead. They do have a lot of cards that are essentially just mana. Is that a possible avenue with shops? I mean, which shops doesn't really have a very good easy time hating on a single card like that. About the only thing you can do is hope you can get up to eight mana and you can chalice on four. Chalice for four. <laughs> a bold move. <laughs> A lot of your sideboard plan is also shutting down cards in your deck. So, like, that's something you are fighting against as well. Right. But, like, I know how to play around my own Null Rods much better than most people. So, I mean, obviously, people like uh, Montolio are much better at it than I am, but... Yeah, shops definitely takes a certain amount of skill to navigate what you're expecting to face and how you're presenting threats and answers. Yeah, and if I find, you know, I'm still looking for some secret tech from 10 years ago that everybody forgot about. So, oh, <laughs> like, it'd be nice to have something spicy, but I don't expect it. Yeah. Welding solemns in and out? That seems fast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is the return of Slaver. Or five color stacks. <laughs> of course. This is the time. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. So I'm shifting more to the paradoxical outcome perspective. I think there is a certain difficulty in playing that deck because there's a lot of, I'll call it wheel spinning that you get into. You draw a bunch of cards and do a bunch of stuff and then pass the turn because all you've drawn is more mana or, you know, things that don't actually kill your opponent. And I, I've heard a couple of complaints from people that, you know, paradoxical itself just takes too long to kill if you don't know what you're doing. Like you're sort of fumbling around trying to, to put together a win. Absolutely. I know like on Magic Online the the saving grace is the chess clock. Mm-hmm. So it is definitely something that really anybody at Eternal Weekend needs to keep an eye out for People playing slowly, especially with the Paradoxical deck, don't be afraid to call a judge. Oh, sure. You know, and if you're playing Paradoxical, make sure you, you've got your beats down and you know what to do and when to do it. Oh, sure. Because th- that's going to be a problem, I feel like. 
you know, especially because I feel like vintage players don't call for slow play. So <laughs> there's going to be yeah. a lot of people after the match that are mad that their opponent played slowly. Right. You need to be aware of it so that you do it while you're in the match rather than afterwards, because you might not even realize it. You might not think to call a judge because you're not used to it in a local setting or something like that, where if most of your tournaments are 15 or 20 people and against friends, like you might not get into the habit of calling a judge there where you might not even have a judge to call. So be considerate that this is an important event and you're allowed to call a judge and make sure that your game is proceeding normally. Yeah, I think that we've definitely talked about that before, just how difficult it is because vintage is sort of a more friendlier atmosphere, mm -hmm. almost, I'm not going to say less competitive, but at least more friendlier competitive. Right. It becomes very difficult to sort of figure out where the line is where you, I mean, you just have to say like, I have to call a judge on this. And right. It's, it's a really difficult thing to sort of see where that line is and make sure that you're on the right side of it. Yeah, I mean, if your opponent has drawn 10 cards in their turn and is looking at their hand, figuring out what to do next, like, it's totally legitimate to ask them what their next play is and call a judge if they don't have a ready answer. Is that fair, Josh? Like, is that, I mean, you are, you are oh, a absolutely. judge. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We did, we did not to mention that, but Josh is also a judge in addition to his many other qualifications. Yeah, no, it's, slow play is one of the hardest things for people in a match to realize that is happening. Mm -hmm. So, like, and it's also hard for judges, but so many people don't realize it's a problem until there's 10 minutes left in the match. I have called slow play a minute into a round before. Oh, nice. So, yeah. It's like, you know, sometimes somebody looks at their hand just too many times and then they look at the two cards in their graveyard three times. It's like, no, <laughs> this is a problem. Yeah. You know, that's that's something that as a competitor, that's what you want to watch out for is whenever your opponent is cycling through the cards in their hand and the graveyard and back to their hand and back to the graveyard, it's like they need to make a decision. Right. Don't be afraid to call a judge. That's what they're, I mean, you know, they're getting paid to be there. And if they're bored, then that's bad. Uh, right. Sure. <laughs> Well, I mean, like, you know, there's the longstanding joke in Vintage about five-minute brainstorms and stuff like that. And that's that's not actually quaint. That's just poor play. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But there are so many insane plays. <laughs> I realize. But, you know, going back to your answer to Paradoxical Outcome in Shop, the card I was thinking of is Void Winnower, where your opponent can't cast spells with even converted mana costs. It costs nine, but, you know, huh? That's like chalice number two. Yeah. Yeah, that's entirely affordable. <laughs> it's also an 11-9. And it's just your opponent, right? Yeah. I seem to remember we talked about oathing this, didn't we? Oh, that, that seems, when it came that out. seems likely. Sure. Why not? Yeah. That seems like something we would have talked about, definitely. I've seen him in oath list. Yeah. Your, your <laughs> opponent can't block with creatures with even converted mana costs, which does not include void winnower. Oh no, they can't block with creatures. So yeah. Maybe your void winnower will get through. Yeah, so um looking at paradoxical lists, it looks like actually one of their big threats is that they can come at you from so many different angles. Like there are a lot of different threats that you actually have to have very different answers to to get around. You guys are really making a seriously excellent sales pitch for paradoxical outcome. At this point, I want to play paradoxical outcome. Jeff, don't do it. Jeff, there's <laughs> there's time for you to come to Eternal Weekend. I think you should. <laughs> But I just heard that people who just start playing Paradoxical Outcome are terrible at it. Wait, so why is it hard to play? Because I know what it does, but I don't understand the intricacies of what makes it difficult. I mean, it's just, it's like another combo deck. It has complex lines where, you know, you can either draw X many cards with this spell, or you can draw X minus one cards, but get some other benefit with this other spell, or you can, you know. I suppose it's exactly what you've been talking about, because part of right. having a lot of different ways to sort of lines of attack means that at any given time, you have to be thinking about, like, am I on the right path? Is this a good time to divert and change my strategy here? Yeah, exactly. If I'm heading for a Monastery Mentor win, is that what I want, or should I be going to find Time Vault and Key? And Yeah, at, at what point is the deck saying that I should be doing something else? Right, or am I getting a read off my opponent that says I should be doing something or something else? Oh. One of the things that I've noticed playing against people is if you decide too early to commit to a certain path, mm. it's harder to switch gears. Oh, sure. Because you're farther down and you haven't built up as many resources to actually change. Right. So, like, the best players I've seen playing it is 
you know you're going to die. You just don't know how. Mm. But, like, whenever they cast, you know, the turn one mentor, it's like, oh, okay, I can work with this. Yeah, it's like I can, oh. I can answer this mentor that I know about. Yeah. Hmm. That's that's actually very interesting. And I, I feel like mentor has a particular leg up against shops that we were talking about earlier, where it's like they're just a better combo deck than your aggro deck, essentially. I guess it's one of those things, too, where against a more controlling deck like Jeskai, you probably have to be more aware of what line you're going to take, and that gives them, the Jeskai player, more time to set up their answers, too. That's sort of a weirder paradox, if you will. <laughs> I mean, does that seem fair, though? Like, I've... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, like, I've only played Paradoxical a couple of times, and each time... I might as well be a monkey playing football. I like I have no idea what I'm doing with it. I think a um, monkey's natural strength would make it particularly suited <laughs> to play football. <laughs> well, I don't know how they do it up there in Ohio, but here in Texas, not so much. Oh. Yeah, I guess you guys have you guys have tradition. Anyway, let's shift gears from paradoxical and actually look at Jeskai. I mean, I'm using Jeskai more broadly than it should be. Um, I think the usual sort of mentor control lists that don't have paradoxical outcome are typically splashing red for more answers to both workshops and like red elemental blast against other blue decks. So, I mean, there are very many ways that you could build Jeskai, including not Jeskai colors, so blue, red, and white. But I'm sort of using it as a catch-all for the... Uh, this is blue blazed blue based control with um blue blazed control you know it man <laughs> the non paradoxical blue decks the jeskai decks as you're saying is they're not prevalent on the leagues mm -hmm. but they are everywhere in the challenges on magic online why is that i haven't figured it out <laughs> i i think it's just a deck that's better against a Swiss event where you're playing against somebody else who's won instead of just a random mm -hmm. dumb combo that some idiot is playing. <laughs> you know, like in the leagues, there's just so much randomness with what you're going to get. Yeah. I mean, it's probably like when you're in the leagues, you feel like you more frequently want to play a more explosive deck that can win against an opponent in a shorter time frame rather than a deck that lets you build up over multiple games and matches is that does that makes sense? that's that's probably correct yeah. yeah and i mean i guess if you since you're doing a league and can split things up too like you may actually just only have time for one or two shorter games and would therefore want to play a combo deck rather than a more control deck right yeah i hadn't hadn't thought about the distinctions there between those two but you were saying as a uh, shops player that the jeskai decks are frustrating what are they doing against you and why does it seem to work so well? <laughs> the plethora of lightning bolts and shattering spree and ancient grudges, mm. like, and they've got the Hercules. It's just, they've got so many cards that I think that they need against the paradoxical decks, the oath decks, things like that, that it's just also works against shops. And maybe you should stop playing so many damn artifacts. Huh? I like my robots. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's interesting because you're, I mean, huh. basically the thing is that the Jeskai decks have answers for everything and the draw spells to get to them as long as the game goes long enough. That's, Absolutely. That's what they're running, or that's what you're running into is like all of their creature removal and artifact removal becomes good against you as long as they survive to play it. Right. Quite often it is just a straight up aggro race where we both just sort of ignore the other person's creatures, no, sure. you know, and just try to get them down to zero as fast as possible. Huh. One of the things that I've been testing out lately is a singleton uh, caltrips in my board oh, cool. <laughs> to kill all of the uh, elemental tokens. Oh, right, sure. So they're pl they're playing playing things like Young Pyromancer still then? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, but the the problem is, is the caltrips doesn't do anything against the monk tokens. Yeah, right. So <laughs> Clearly you need to upgrade to multiple power stone minefields. Oh, man. Do I have to look that one up? What is that? I'm... I'm looking it up. <laughs> I think that it's Caltrops, but two damage? <laughs> yes, but it's also oh. two red Plus and a white. Six? Oh, yes. is it? It's, it's Boros. <laughs> I'll just play a second Caltrops. I don't play magic! <laughs> <laughs> 
So, I mean, you're you're talking about it as more of a just aggro race. I mean, are your effective cards against them just like your biggest and best creatures that, you know, the, the scaling ones and the ones that, you know, shoot their tokens at other ones and that sort of thing? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, because it's the Foundry Inspectors die and get countered a lot. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, but, they, well, those are effectively your spheres now, right? Like those are the things that push you ahead instead of pulling the other person back. Right, but like the Ravager and Ballista and the Hangerback. The Hangerback is actually really good in that matchup because hmm. it takes it from the, you know, on the ground and then you get, you know, four or five dudes up in the air. Sure. Well, all of the Jeskai creatures are ground-based, so if you've got enough blockers, you can you can deal with that. But right. they can't deal with the, the Thopters. Right. I had good luck playing um, the Rug decks back before Mentor came out because... You could hold the ground in a couple of different ways, either with like one big blocker like Tarmogoyf or many small blockers like from Young Pyromancer, and then also attack in the air with like Vendillion Click. And I found that to be a pretty good strategy. I feel like that sort of multiple, various sizes of creatures seemed pretty good in these those situations. Yeah, I'd I'd be much more concerned about that style where it's not just all one ones and two ones. Sure. I think blue and white are the two colors that most people are playing and then you can splash black or red. Uh I haven't seen a lot of people splashing green, but I like it. And I guess if Josh were here, I'm sure he would talk to us about bug control. Would he? Have we ever talked about bug control before? If you go back through our archives, there's like six different episodes where we've talked about various blue black oh. green decks it's um this podcast really loves them <laughs> i think that sort of control deck especially with assassin's trophy now could be a surprise like there's a lot of i think the the jeskai lists have been prominent recently but i mean bug could come in for this champs and do well if anyone puts the time into it and likes assassin's trophy i think that card's pretty good yeah. so have you, as a shops player, given any thought to splashing a basic land in your lists that you can find? Uh, I, I am now. <laughs> <laughs> Just wondering. I mean, I think that would be a real surprise if you were playing shops or dredge or something and were like, I'm going to go get my wastes now. I mean, probably you wouldn't play wastes because I think you could figure out a better colored land to play. Yeah, I think that that becomes the most important question here is, if you play a single basic for the case of, I mean, you also get splash if anybody tries to ghost quarter you. Yeah. What color basic do you play? I mean, it's probably swamp. Why? Uh, Josh, are you still running dismembers? I'm still running dismember, and I know that uh, Montolio has been testing out vault scourge. Oh, interesting. I don't even know what that is. It's one one flying lifelinker, but it's oh. it's one in a Phyrexian black. That's hmm. that's a good vintage card then. One one flying lifelinker. Yeah, so I think that swamp is actually a good idea. Yeah, uh, that, that, I was just wondering. I mean, I, I mean, I expect that there will be people playing Assassin's Trophy. I don't know how many, but being able to go get a basic land seems very good, and probably doesn't hurt you all that much. No, no, I'll just cut an ancient tomb. They try to kill me anyway. Yeah. Ancient Tomb or, like, City of Traders, sure man. <laughs> what is your mana base? Like, how many Ancient Tomb and, and City of Traders? Just curious. Zero cities, but four Ancient Tombs. Gotcha. Yeah, and there, there's a joke on stream about Death by Tomb. Oh, yeah. Because that thing oh, bites sure. me in the butt a lot. It, it does not take long for Tomb damage to stack up. Generally, if I play Ancient Tomb, I get hands with three of them, so... Yeah. Oh, yeah, they always travel in packs. Yeah, just, just bring it on. Just give me all the damage. I will take it. Got to put out this six drop yeah. and die. Well, no, because you're playing a two drop and then a four drop and then a six drop. So <laughs> uh, I think we've gone through the three big archetypes. Well, I guess, and we've talked about survival as well. I think my prediction would be that you're going to face you know, a seven or eight round tournament. You're probably going to play against workshops paradoxical and some blue control jeskai list twice each i think that sounds kind of reasonable don't you think you're gonna have some dredge mixed in there well i think so in, in a seven seven round tournament i think your last match is going to be against either dredge or oath i mean not not last in order but <laughs> because obviously they won all their other matches so I mean, no one this is the test. For dredge but yeah <laughs> 
I think Dredge is still a, a good and popular archetype. And I know that it always gets hyped before Eternal Weekend because everyone's like, oh, well, bazaars are super cheap. Like, you can you can buy those and play Dredge whenever, even though they're... I have some news for you. They're, even though they're, what, like $1,000 each now? Bazaars are, I think, about a 1000 apiece. Yeah. So bazaars not super cheap. But you can... You you can you can buy bazaars super cheap and um and uh, and just and just just play the deck right so I mean it, it had been for a long time that bazaar or that dredge rather was very graveyard based and I guess that's still true except that you also have hollow ones in the board hollow one I've actually started seeing a main deck as well oh okay the straight dredge hollow one deck is just it seems faster than it used to, mm-hmm. which is mind-boggling because it seems very fast <laughs> then. Yeah, it it is. It seems faster. Um, I'd actually almost rather play against uh, Pitch Dredge. Oh, interesting. Because then they've got all those useless counter spells in hand. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like okay, yeah, I can't play my Ravager. That's great. Right. But you're not putting Dredgers in the yard, so we're okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like the uh, the hollow ones are actually a card that scares me more than a lot of the other dredge creatures. Like hollow one is a threat on its own, whereas like the other dredge stuff, I mean, they're already either doing their dredge thing and have a horde of zombies, or none of their cards is a threat. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely more afraid of hollow one than anything else they do on turn one. Interesting, sure. because on turn one, one to two hollow ones can drop out and. That's a lot of power to deal with. Right, and they're they're out of range of, like, some of the common... Bur- I mean, like, if anyone's playing Lightning Bolts or anything like that, like, they're out of range of that, but, you know, you still have uh, Swords to Plowshares or any artifact removal, but your artifact removal is, like, zero good against the rest of that deck. Yeah, who's keeping their artifact removal in against Dredge? Right. Yeah, so, I mean, again, we're seeing another deck that has multiple different kinds of threats that are making it more difficult to deal with than it had been in the past. I think the strategy that I like against Dredge is to play a bunch of different kinds of removal or d- different kinds of graveyard hate. If you have something, you know, permanent like Ley Lines or Rest in Peace, that's great. Also good to have, I mean, I always run a couple of Ravenous Traps because I think they're harder to see coming. And then yeah. one or two artifacts of some sort, either Tormod's Crypt or like Relic of Progenitus. Like I said, I think that having a variety of different things that are difficult to deal with and can't all be answered by the same either Nature's Claim or Chain of Vapor or whatever. Absolutely. I think it's also important not to undervalue the counter magic in that equation. Oh, sure. Like, people at least used to side out counter spells against Dredge, and I think that's a terrible idea because they need to resolve one spell Yeah. if you get a piece of hate out, so... Yeah, Dredge needs, spell. Dredge needs to resolve like one, maybe two, if they're unlucky, removal spells for your hate. And like, yeah, they're only going to be able to play a couple of spells in a lot of cases. So being able to answer those is important. Mm-hmm. So that said, what are you? What's your shop stack doing for Dredge? So I've got the Grafdigger's Cage, Relic of Progenitus, Sorcerer Spyglass is pretty good oh, yeah. because you can turn off Bazaar. Right, sure. The Aggro Shops builds actually have just natural ways to blow up bridges left and right oh, because sure. you can sacrifice the Ravager to itself. You know, the amount of walking ballistas I've cast for zero just to nuke <laughs> a couple of bridges, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, it feels painful, but it's like, well, I don't have to deal with that anymore. Right. Sure. Like I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like that helps. And you know, the, Phyrexian Metamorph, it's another... Oh, sure, cast it for three, three mana and two life. Down. Right. Yeah, it's, but that's where you want to take out the Chief of the Foundries and all of your stuff like that, because you want these things to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the uh, Phyrexian Metamorph thing is a little is a little obscure, actually, but it, if you cast that and don't choose to copy anything, it just dies because it's zero zero. so it'll remove bridges. For a long time, I had a winning record against Dredge Game 1, and now I don't, and I'm not sure what changed. <laughs> uh, I mean, is it just Hollow 1? I think that that is a big part of it. Uh-huh. He's so much bigger than any of my threats the turn I cast him. Sure. I mean, a 4-4 four, four for, what, 2 or 3 is great. Like, your 4-4 four, four has cost 8. Very true. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. But I would expect that any of the blue decks with a lot of draw, if they have a reasonable hate package of seven or eight cards or so against Dredge, would uh, have a pretty good matchup against that in a lot of cases, simply because they could find hate faster than Dredge could answer it. Absolutely. And this is a tip for all the blue players out there. Don't fire off the recall on turn one. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> the amount of dredge players I've killed with an ancestral recall targeting them mm. is greater than zero. Yeah, that's a good point. I was testing against dredge uh, last week, and there were a couple of games where I was like, "Man, if I had ancestral in my hand, I would just win this game." It wasn't that I had already played it; it was just that it wasn't around. But yeah, I mean, there's a couple of creative ways like that to win against dredge. That if you're aware of them, you can take advantage of that. The other deck that we haven't really looked at yet is Oath and. I mean, Oath is a deck that sort of falls into the Jeskai camp where it's like you're playing blue control and in this case your win condition is Oath of Druids and some creature or suite of creatures. But there's several different builds of that that are good and reasonable. I think most of them have Grizzlebrand. Yeah, they've got Grizzlebrand, uh, Inferno Titan. Those are the two typical go-to creatures. I'm a big fan of Arcana Valor's Reach. Oh yeah, that that's a new card out of Battle Bond that shuts off a card type for your opponent. So like you can say against your workshop opponent, you can't play any more artifacts, for example, right? Yeah, and I just pick up my cards. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> what do you do? But yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be a new one. I think that, I know that there are people who are working on builds of that. That is a card that is not online yet, right? It actually is, oh, is it? Um, in the dumb creatureless oath that I was playing at the last challenge. I had four archons in the sideboard. Oh, that's right. I saw that. I never got to resolve one, but I tried. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens, because I think that that card can really change the way oath is built. I'm not sure how yet, yeah. but I, I think it does. Well, it used to be that there were there have been different builds of Oath as well, where you could have a more controlling list where, I mean, I feel like the, what was it, Iona and Terastodon, what was the third creature in that group? Uh, I don't remember. But anyway, I feel like that was a more controlling list than some of the more either aggressive creature lists or now where you have sort of an aggressive combo list with Grizzlebrand, where it's like you do have this way to get your creature and draw a bunch of cards and potentially just win on the spot. You're playing the control game just long enough to get Oath into play and the trigger to resolve. I see one with Sphinx of the Steel Wind. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Oh, they brought him back? No, I'm just looking up the third, because it's going to bother me, the third creature in Terastodon Oath. I think that actually sounds right, because that has lifelink and protection from relevant colors. And... Yeah, and you can tinker it. Yeah, basically it was also good against, like, creature decks like if your opponent was playing creatures like sphinx of the steel wind just laughs at creature decks and smacks them yeah my plan is actually to play oath probably i'm i'm almost certainly playing oath at eternal weekend but i'm playing tidespout tyrant because you rock it old school i just (laughs) i'm really bored by grizzlebrand and i don't want to play it and i'm sorry that you know, I'm just going to Bruce this whole thing and play a strictly worse version of a deck. But it's okay, because I'm going to have fun, and I'm going to make infinite mana, and I'm going to cast so many spells, and I don't know, I'm going to have fun. It's going to be great. It really makes me wonder, like, when I think about Gristlebrand and Oath, what is the creature that comes along that makes Gristlebrand <laughs> not the obvious Oath creature include? And it's kind of a frightening thought. Well, I mean, I think there are... Like, Grizzlebrand is just so good at being a generalist. Like, it, yeah. it's, it's big, it gains life, it flies, it draws cards. Like, you can play your game how you want, and Grizzlebrand will be there for you. Yeah. Tidespout Tyrant does some cool things that I want to do, and <laughs> I have built a deck around it, and it seems like it's going to be fun, and I'm going to flash back some spells. It'll be sweet. I mean, I think for, for me anyway, the, the goal with Oath is that you want to effectively win the turn you Oath your creature. I feel like Tidespout Tyrant does that well enough. So Absolutely. like Especially with the Inferno Titan builds, a lot of times they don't win for two to three turns. Sure. And that just seems really slow to me with because I've played Oath before and I much rather just kill you now. Sure. But I mean like with Tides or sorry, with Inferno Titan, you keep their creatures off the board, you're dealing them damage. I mean like you're in control of the game, it's just a different kind of control. I mean that's the idea anyway, is that you still are 
effectively winning the game. It's just you haven't actually finished the game. True. So, I mean, coming back to this question then, so what is your workshop plan against Oath of Druids? I mean, you already mentioned you had Grafdigger's Cage. Do you do anything else? Grafdigger's Cage, dismember to make their grizzle brand a little bit smaller. The Sorceress Spyglass, Phyrexian Robokers to name grizzle brand if that's the route they've taken. And the Phyrexian Metamorphs, I typically play two to four main deck because, mm. okay, that's fine. You can cheat your fatty into play. I, I've got one too. Yeah, you'll have your own. <laughs> <laughs> like, Oath is just a natural predator for shops because they only have to resolve one spell. Sure. And th their dude is always bigger than yours and typically has benefits because, like, the Inferno Titan, it'll hit and it'll shoot an Overseer or a Revoker and the Ravager you've got, and then you're just left with a 4-3 idiot Foundry Inspector. Right, right. Well, I'll just point out that Void Winnower would also <laughs> stop both of Druids. <laughs> and for that matter, Hardcast Inferno Titan. And Grizzlebrand. Yeah, I, here's your answer, Void Winnower. Also, Niv Mizzet. Right. Because Niv Mizzet costs eight. I'm sorry, costs six. six. But Tidespout Tyrant costs eight. Oh my god. Man, this format is easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> Just got to get to nine mana. Okay, no problem. You can do that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's turn three. I'm just thinking about playing channel. I At mean, worse. <laughs> <laughs> also blocked by Void Winnower. <laughs> it's, it's really unfortunate that Void Winnower is not an artifact and can't actually be played off of Workshop itself. I was just sort of assuming from this conversation that it was. Mm. No, 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 no. Well, that's unfortunate. All right, I'm done with the channel plan. Let's do this. Yeah. Have they unrestricted channel yet? No. Still restricted. Why not? Uh, I couldn't convince anyone that it was a good idea. <laughs> That's too bad. I know. It really is a shame. <laughs> to be fair... I mean, I'll sign the petition. To be fair, I never actually mentioned that plan to anyone because even I think it's a little crazy. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> I think we've covered the full range of things that you can reasonably expect to play against at Eternal Weekend. So it's Shops, Jeskai Control, Paradoxical Outcome as your biggest threats. I think those are going to be the higher proportions of the metagame. And then Survival, Dredge, and Oath. I think we're all ready. So I think the more important thing, following Eternal Weekend events, you're going to want to get food. After you bomb out of the event, you mean? Uh, yes. yes. So like around one thirty, <laughs> you're going to first lunch and then later on dinner. No second lunch? I mean, I expect you're <laughs> at lunch for a while, probably just drinking. I mean, we're here for a good time. This is Pittsburgh after all. Yeah, we didn't do a post-Gen Con show, but I know that at Gen Con, it was just like, wake up at 11, have breakfast, go to the con. People are talking about lunch. Yeah, I can go to lunch. Yeah. Come back from lunch. Other people are like, oh, I missed lunch. I'm thinking about going to lunch. Yeah, I can go to lunch again. Yeah, Gen Con 2018 was definitely about food. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I think we'll, we can talk a little bit about Pittsburgh restaurant recommendations. I have a list here curated by team serious food expert Jerry Yang and Raja James, who travels to Pittsburgh periodically on business. So we have, we have quite a list of things. Unfortunately, several of them I have not been to. And Josh, obviously, if you have any to add that you enjoyed last year, were you at the Eternal Weekend last year? Yes, I was. And did you have any food recommendations from that one? I'm looking up to see if I can find it. There was a little taco joint. Okay, well, you look that up. Yeah. Uh, I will start by saying that I think the the staple food at Pittsburgh events in the past for us has been Primanti Brothers. They have since expanded from their fewer locations and are now a sort of widespread chain throughout the Pittsburgh area. But they have some pretty good-sized sandwiches, and their unique thing about their sandwich is that, that they put both coleslaw and french fries on most of their sandwiches. Yeah, I had that last year, and I really could have done without the fries on the sandwiches. It's, it's kind of an acquired taste because 
you basically just put a big wad of carbs in the middle of your carbs. I don't know. I could I could take or leave it. It's fine. I like Permani Brothers. The the one story I was thinking of, there was a large group of us that went to a tournament in Pittsburgh, and this must have been around 2007 or so. This may actually have been the Steel City Open hosted by Brian Kyle back then when he was active in vintage and there were there were a lot of blank city opens that were going on but anyway this large group of us went to permanti brothers and i think there were i don't know 15 of us or so we were there before the tournament and had ordered food and our waiter disappeared and so we were all sort of waiting like like are we talking supernatural disappeared no I'll I'll get to that. So we were all just sort of like hanging out. We're just all talking. Drinks are not being refilled. We never get our food. Soon we flag down another waiter who's walking by. And we're like, we haven't seen our waiter. Um, do you know what happened? Like, can we get can we get service? Like, can we get refills and like where's our food? And she's like, Oh, I don't know. I'll go check. So she walks off. She comes back and she's like um, I'm really sorry, but apparently your waiter quit. <laughs> um, so we're gonna we're gonna refill your drinks and we'll get your food out right away. I'm really sorry about this. Don't know what happened. Uh, he's he was very new and like uh, he just couldn't take. Apparently, this. he just could not handle this giant group of people and and was just like, I'm out. I just. These, these sandwiches are too much for me. And like, <laughs> and just walked out the door. So I hope that you get a chance to go to Permanti Brothers once while you're in Pittsburgh. Enjoy the food, have a beverage, and maybe your waiter will stick it out and you can have the full effect. I mean, we've all had that day. Yeah. He just decided to really take the plunge yeah i'm proud it was great he was just like yeah i'm i'm done I'm not doing this these nerds are too much for me <laughs> uh so i have i have other recommendations i think the place that everyone raved about last year was emporio they specialize in meatballs so they're kind of a pasta place that also has meatballs of various types including vegetarian i think they're a little bit off of the outside the area of the convention center but they're worth it. I've heard so many people say that they really are just looking forward to meatballs this year. That's not a team serious euphemism. I, you know, actually, <laughs> um, I, everything I, makes sense now. I don't think so, but, um, you know, since it actually comes with the restaurant name, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think it's oh, okay. the Emporio for meatballs. I'll put links to all of these in the write up when I'm done. If you're into pierogies, I think the, the place that we've recommended before is Starlight Lounge, which is also a little bit away from the convention center. They have lots of different kinds of pierogies, and they're all pretty good sized. Like you can, you know, get a hefty pocket of dough with stuff in it. I know we went there. Here's another tournament story from 10 years ago or whatever, but I know we went there one time and we got there pretty late and they were really excited to see us again. There were like 20 <laughs> people who walked in like 15 minutes before closing or something. So. so what would be, cause obviously traditional pierogi is just like potato and cheese and, and onion. What, what other things can you have in there? That's not sacrilege. Well, I mean like you can put, you know, bacon, I think is, is a popular addition. Uh, okay. You can put more different kinds of cheese uh, I think spinach, like a spinach and ricotta pierogi. I mean, at some point you're just getting into like raviolis, right? Like it's just like a, <laughs> it's like a big ravioli or like a savory pop tart. This all sounds perfectly reasonable. Yeah, uh, you know. Yeah, I'm on yeah. board. <laughs> the other location that I have a recommendation for is the O, which is the original hot dog shop near the university district. They have good food. They're a kind of typical you know, college 
joint. They have burgers and fries and hot dogs, obviously. But if you're interested in magic history, that's where Team CMU used to dine back when they were building and testing decks back at Carnegie Mellon University. Can you explain Team CMU? Because I don't think I'm old school enough to know that reference. Sure. I mean, that was back in, you know, the mid 90s when Randy Bueller and Eric Lauer and Aaron Forsyth and other skilled deck builders of that generation were building and playing decks like Drago and the Necro deck. So wow. that's, that's where like Necro Summer got its start, I guess, is at the O. Oh. I, I haven't been there. Jerry Yang says it's. You know, like I said, good classic college joints. He recommends getting a small basket of twice fried fries and yingling. The small basket is still like a pound and a half of fries. So you'll probably enjoy that. Neat. Yeah. So those are all the ones that I have any sort of stories and or detail about. Josh, did you find your location? I did. It's called Condado Taco. Oh, Condado. Yes, we have those. There's one of those in Columbus as well. But those are pretty good. It's within walking distance of the convention center. Yeah. That's a place where you can get, they have several different build your own sort of tacos and also recommended lists. And you can get margaritas of various sizes and flavors. And Yes, yes. That was the uh, the beginning of my downfall yeah. last year was uh, oh. the margarita pitcher number one. Are you four. saying that you can go to Condado Tacos between rounds? It's going to be rough, but I think you can do it, <laughs> especially if you're playing a, a fast combo deck. All right. I'll uh, I'll be playing a fast combo deck in Legacy, I think, so maybe this will work. That seems perfectly reasonable. Bring the pitcher of margaritas with you coming back for the next round. I'll just have my hydro flask and can put the margaritas in there. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Condado Tacos is pretty great. They have a lot of good stuff and a lot of... A lot of fun. Definitely would be good for a group or uh, would be fun after having a um, good losing day at Eternal Weekend. Oh, yeah. And then I have like seven more places that I pretty much just have the name of. Like I said, these are from Jerry and Raja. And we'll start with the Robert Holy & Co. Incorporated, which is apparently a seafood restaurant. They have a sushi buffet, but it's in Pittsburgh. And I guess they also have a pretty good fish sandwich. Jerry said their seafood was good. Including their sushi? The sushi is in Pittsburgh. And it, you may have missed that. Oh, my bad. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, that's a little dangerous. That's what I, I was saying. Like, Jerry has pretty high standards for sushi. That's why I would have been, would have been surprised there. Yeah, I, I'm sure their sushi is fine, but Pittsburgh does not have an open seaport. So I'm not going <laughs> to... What could go wrong? I'm not going to say get the sushi, but you probably won't die. Probably. <laughs> also in that area is Gaucho Paria Argentina, which uh, has Argentinian food. There's Ephesus Mediterranean Restaurant. Nikki's Thai Kitchen. That's N-I-C-K-Y. Nikki's Thai Kitchen. Also in a group elsewhere in the city, there's Yuva Indian Kitchen and Bar for Indian food. Lulu's Noodles. I think it's uh, also Asian, but it's uh, probably more Chinese. And then uh, Bengal Kebab House and Restaurant for Indian food. So we have these names. They get decent reviews on Yelp and Google. And hopefully you will try them out and you can let us know how we did coming up with recommendations. Yeah, if you try these and hate them, be sure to direct your hate to at Grandpa Belcher on Twitter. Just direct it to at Yang Trolls on Twitter. Even better. <laughs> But I think that's it. I'm really looking forward to uh, Eternal Weekend. This will be my first Eternal Weekend in three years, I think. My drought goes back even farther than my employment at Wizards, so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to it. I'm also looking forward to you getting back to Eternal Weekend. Jeff, I really think you should come. I realize that. Thanks for being on the show, Josh. Yeah. No problem. Uh, you can, I enjoyed it. Yeah, you can check out Josh's stream. Uh, he streams as Infant No One on Twitch. Uh, I will make sure I have a link. You can just search for Infant, and I'm sure he'll show up at some point. Uh, but he <laughs> he streams regularly, plays a lot of shops, uh, has been getting into arena, and uh, is always a good time. Thank you. Thank you. It's happened again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh McCurley. And we hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Bye. Take a little trip. Take a little
man, I feel really out of practice on these podcast things. 